Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, what is up, everybody? Got a good one for you today. Across from me, digitally, I have Mr. Clay Newcomb, part of the Meat Eater crew, involved with Bear Hunting Magazine for many years, host of the Bear Grease podcast, amongst other things. Now, you might be noticing a, a, a word trend here, Clay, and, and the word is bear. And I would it safe to say you're a, a pretty passionate bear hunter? Yeah, I believe that would be safe to say, Mark. Okay, good. I, I thought that might be the case. Now, Clay, one of the things that I personally love about bear hunting is they live in a variety of landscapes. You can pursue them in a variety of ways. You've, you've got spot and stock. You can hunt them with hounds. You can hunt over bait. And apparently, there's a new way or another way that I wasn't even, <laughs> I wasn't even aware of uh, until as of late. So we're going to get there. We're going to get mm-hmm. there. So maybe that's a little foreshadowing, right. a little bit of a tease. But Clay, before we get too deep in the weeds here, man, you've just got like a really cool, just personal history, a history in the outdoor industry and doing a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you have going on, you know, throughout throughout your career. It's just it's all really neat yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, I gotta I gotta start off by commenting on your your intro there about bears. And then I'll then I'll get to me. Is that okay, Mark? Hey, you, you know, know what? I I honestly I prefer talking about me. I mean, if you, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, the, the the you said bears, you hunt them in so many different ways. Bears are the the second most widely distributed big game animal in North America, from the Atlantic coast to the to the West coast, from the Arctic down into old Mexico. There are black bears, and they also, I think, are the most the most diversified animal in methods of hunting, bar none. Like there's no other animal that has so many methods, and it's because they span such a wide geographic area that people in different places over the years, and this wasn't like this wasn't like hunters trying to find fun ways to hunt animals. It was, it was, it was indigenous people. It was pioneers and frontiersmen that came here, market hunters trying to find ways to acquire bear meat and bear grease. And so we have all these unique, different ways to hunt bears. And I think that's what makes them so interesting. They're survivors, man. Whatever's happening ecologically in North America today in the midst of all the crisis that we have environmentally in so many ways and in and, and, and different species of big game that we love and hunt. Some of them are, are struggling. Man, black bears are not one of those species. The generalists, the omnivores are thriving. So I had to comment on that. We can talk more about that. But, you know, that my, my love of bears came honestly because I, because I didn't know anything about them when I first started hunting. It was like this, there was this hole inside of my knowledge base after the first bear that I ever killed. And I had been a bow hunter for my whole life, basically my whole life at that time. And all the other animals, turkey, deer, squirrel, other stuff that I'd hunted and killed. I knew about these animals and I killed a bear, realized I didn't know anything about them. That kind of set me on a track, but, but no, I, I grew up, I grew up in Arkansas. My family's been here for a long time. 
and in western arkansas the 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 we call it the mountainous side of arkansas i've had a few people chuckle saying me me calling arkansas mountains or arkansas what we have here mountains and if those people were standing in front of me and said that man they might wish they hadn't <laughs> uh, these are mountains we've got here brother ozark and washita's and and i've always been really connected to place i i i have a deep sense of appreciation for place and stories that are connected to place. And uh, th there's something that's really grand about loving a place just because that's where you're from. I mean, if I was from the Rocky Mountain West, which has so much majestic, obvious beauty, or if I was from other places that maybe have more grand landscapes, I mean, I, I know why those people love it, but I love it when people love places like Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas and Missouri and, you know, Wisconsin, you know, th these places that aren't as quite as glamorous as some of our more beautiful places or are more, more evidently beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, man, every landscape can be absolutely amazing if, if you look hard enough. And I, I think you, you hit on something there that there's a lot of truth I, I, where you grow up, you know, or oftentimes what, what you call home, I think that gets ingrained into the fiber of your being in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, I mean, I think everybody likes home. There's just, you know, uh, something feels good about home and you see people, they travel, you know, maybe their career takes them, you know, on, on a pretty windy path, but oftentimes they end up where they started. And I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And you talk about y landscapes being more like, evidently beautiful. I remember when I moved to far western Nebraska from the from the Pacific Northwest, I was like, what have I done? And the more and the longer that I lived there, the more I fell in love with that open landscape and and you start to see things that on the surface weren't evident. And yeah, I mean, I, every landscape is unique and cool in its own way, that's for sure. Mhm. Mm well, I just a little bit of a more practical chronological journey so i grew up wh primarily whitetail bow hunting my dad was a big bow hunter back in the 70s kind of when bow hunting was revived in the country it was never fully lost but in the 70s there was some technology advances and and there was just a lot of a lot more access to bow hunting my dad loved it and to this day he's in his mid 70s he's still bow hunting whitetail deer on public land that's what i grew up doing that's all we knew and was a very just just loved to hunt just like so many people I know that are listening right now never dreamed that I would work in the outdoor industry that was never a goal never entered my mind really went to college at the University of Arkansas started a landscape company basically so I could work for myself so I could raise my young family but also so that I could be in the woods when the when the white oak leaves turn maroon in the fall that's what i remember telling people back in the day <laughs> i just wanted to have that freedom my dad my dad was a professional he was he he he, he worked as a banker and my whole life he told us he said boys you got to work for yourself got to work for yourself if you don't want to be be confined by a job you know, by a nine to five. And, and I, I don't know if he really knew how much that impacted me as a kid, but it did because I went to college and never really used my college degree officially or formally a day in my life. Started a landscape company, which was a 
means to an end. I wasn't passionate about landscaping. I, I did enjoy hard work and still do today, but, but it, it did enable me to, to hunt and to raise my family, which were my two goals. And then going back to my original story about this first bear that I killed, which would have been in 2001 here in Arkansas, I killed this animal. It was was an incredible hunt and realized I knew nothing about this animal. And it was kind of a hollow feeling to me because, you know, deer and turkey, I mean, we, we knew what they ate when they bred, where they lived in the mountains, when, how they moved, what they did, how to cook them. Like we knew as much as we could know, you know, for the time and we felt like we did. And this bear, we were just like, holy cow, what is, what in the world? And people had told us you couldn't eat bear. And and we found out that wasn't true. And, and we, that I was in college and that set me on a journey. I went back to the university of Arkansas and went into the library and started pulling out books that I guarantee you nobody had looked at in 15 years. I mean, these books were, nobody had checked these out and they were the thesis the research projects that the, the, the thesis uh, uh, PhD students at the university who had studied bears. And, and there were about four different studies on Arkansas bears. They were the only ones that had ever been done. And I read those cover to cover and just m- was memorizing data and taking notes. And I mean, for no reason, just, it was just interesting to me. And, and that would roll into me starting a, a hunting conservation organization for bears in the state early on, which is no longer in existence. I kind of look back and laugh at it a little bit, you know, but at the time it was like serious business to me. We started the Arkansas black bear association. It it was cool. I I wish it was still around, but it just got, it's kind of like it was a, a stepping stone. And then once I stepped up onto another stone, I just couldn't figure out how to make it work. But so I, started the Arkansas black bear association and just really started to dive into bears and, and man, Hey, Mark, stop me. If I'm rambling on, I, I could, I can continue to ramble. No, I, but I I'm, I'm loving it, man. I mean, this is, this is my favorite part. So yeah, keep going. Okay. Well, what happened in Arkansas, I think is what happened in a lot of places is that Arkansas was once known as the bear state. Pre-Civil War in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, all the literature coming out of Arkansas had market hunting for bears somewhere inside of it. This place, before we became a state, people were coming here to market hunt. And it wasn't just bears they were after. They were after all the normal stuff, deer hides and whatnot. But there was one, one it was called Southwest Humor, a guy named uh, Thorpe wrote a story called the big bear of Arkansas. And we did a whole podcast on it on bear grease. It's fascinating. He, he wrote this. It's like a fun fictional folklore tale, but it's, it's, it's set up like it's a true story. And this story was, was published across the country and basically went viral. This story called the big bear of Arkansas in 1830. It was, it was, I believe in 1841 and the story branded the state so strongly. And back then these stories, this was essentially like a, like a social media post that went viral or a song that went viral or a, 
or a movie that just people went crazy about. I mean, they didn't have movies. They didn't have radio. They had nothing but newspapers for entertainment. And this story, The Big Bear of Arkansas, was published in newspapers across the country. And people were, people were enthralled with the American frontier. And that's where their, the eyes of the world and the country was on the American frontier. And here's the story called The Big Bear of Arkansas. Well, that story was so good. What happens with a viral trend today is that if there's a viral trend and somebody does something, a hundred other people do the same thing. And so other people started writing about bear hunting in Arkansas, bear hunting in Arkansas. And Arkansas became known as the bear state. And we had a ton of bears. And maybe not any more than Missouri and Mississippi and Oklahoma and whatnot, but it just, it just, the, 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 the focus was on bears. Well, between, you know, the 1860s and 1900, what happened all across the country with our big game happened here. They killed them all. At one time there was 50,000 bears here and there were estimated 50 bears left in the whole state. So from 1900 to 1960, Th basically three generations of humans, there were no bears in Arkansas and they were culturally forgotten. We forgot them. We, it, like my dad had zero, zero knowledge of bear hunting, zero interest in it, zero. His, his dad and granddad didn't talk to him about bear hunting because they weren't here. And in three generations and two generations, you can forget a lot. And so in between 1950 and 1960, 1954 and 1964, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission brought in black bears into Arkansas and released them in three different locations. And, and essentially the hunters, and this isn't hype or a spin, but literally the hunters, the people that wanted to hunt bear, brought them back, restored them into Arkansas. And then in 1980, was the first year there was a bear season in Arkansas. And, and then in the year 2001 was the first year that they kind of liberalized the season enough that it was really a feasible thing for people to hunt bear. And that's the year that I killed my first bear was in 2001. And I was amazed at the way that people culturally handled bear here. A lot of people thought they were vermin or just had no value or it's like a like a trash animal almost, which shocked me because when I killed this bear and started reading this stuff and seeing this old history, I was like, man, this is a world-class resource. This is an incredible thing that's happened here. And that's, that's really what turned me on to bear. I mean, that's my, that's my start is that I, I saw that in a lot of ways, bears for years were, were, treated differently than other big game animals. People were afraid to talk about them because of the ways that we hunt them. I mean, man, when I started talking about bears in 2013, 10 years ago, when I acquired Bear Hunting Magazine, which I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but in 2013, I acquired Bear Hunting Magazine and started publishing it. I felt, I feel like the outdoor industry was afraid to talk about them mainstream. I mean, I, I, I it's just true because we hunted them with with hounds, we hunted them with bait. We kind of had this ways that was harder to tell a story about. And it was a little more controversial. And we started telling those stories and telling why we do this and the rich history that we have with bears. And I think today 
10 years later, and, and there were a lot of guys that were doing that. It wasn't just us, but we were right there at the beginning of it. I feel like now today we are a lot more people are interested in bears. They aren't, they know the, the, the philosophy, the ethics behind the way that we hunt them, the way that we hunt them. We know how to use them. We, we, we know the story that we utilize more from a bear than any other big game animal that we hunt in North America. And that's true. I mean, like how many white-tailed deer hides have you tanned of deer that you've killed, Mark? You know, probably not very many. Uh, but, that, that number would be zero. Right. But and I, then I can uh, tell you I've tanned every bear I shot. <laughs> you bet. I mean, I, I would say a high percentage of every bear that's killed is is the hides being tanned. And, you know, you go back to utilization of bear grease. You know, we can – if a bear has a lot of fat, more and more guys are rendering down bear fat and finding ways to use it. And it's really incredible. And then bear meat, man. I mean, back in the day, I mean, my buddy, Steve Rennell is the one who turned me on to this, but it's true is that back in the day, they killed deer for their hides and bear for their meat. I mean, if you, you killed a bear and a deer, man, that deer, that deer meat wasn't near as good as bear meat. And so basically the the narrative on American bear hunting is incredible, absolutely incredible, and in this and I'm kind of I'm kind of getting ahead of myself too here, Mark, but but I think that we have a phrase that we've used a lot called guard the gate, which is an idea that that the the lowest the, the most vulnerable part of a system is what becomes really the most important part of that system. And in the North American model of wildlife conservation, which bears are a huge part of it, one of the, it's the, you know, behind white-tailed deer, I've heard it said that a black bear is likely the second animal that someone will, will hunt. You know, there, there, you know, there's uh, more in, in the Boone and Crockett, Pope and Young records, you know, white-tailed deer is number one, black bear is going to be number two. There's a, there's, they're an important part of our, of our system. And uh, they are for sure undoubtedly the most attacked by the anti-hunting community. It's an easy narrative. It's a, it's a one-step sell. If you have no connection to bear hunting in rural America, for me to say, hey, these guys are using dogs and doing this to hunt bears, this is bad. That's an easy sell to someone who has no heritage and connection back to bear or understand how we use them. It's a much more complicated sell to say, hey, let me tell you why we hunt bears over bait. Let me tell you about the places where any place there's a bear season where you can hunt over bait. It's because the vegetation is so dang thick. You can't see more than 20 yards, and we could never take the bears out that we needed to. You know, hunting over bait gives you the ability to be selective and harvest older age males and get a good shot angle and all this stuff. And you can talk about dogs the same way. And that's a much bigger sell to someone. But it's it's a compelling a compelling idea and thought. So I, I think really the bear hunting is a very vital vital part of the whole system, especially when we start thinking about more than just the next ten years of conservation, the next twenty years. Let's think about the next hundred years of conservation. Our great great grandchildren will they have the freedoms that we have? And I think a lot of the mentality, like we are living off the the seeds sown by the, the pioneers of conservation in the late 1800s and early 1900s, so many of them that were doing stuff, building culture, building ideas and philosophy, protecting wild lands. Like we're now living off the fruit of that 
And I mean, so much of what we're doing now is, is what, what the future is going to be living off of, you know? And uh, so I think bears are really important aside from just being a cool animal. That's good to eat and a real challenge to hunt. I think, I think they hold a really important place in the, the big picture system. And that's part of why I'm passionate about them. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got into bears, Mark. Man, I love it. And, <laughs> you know, and I, I want to commend you for the job that you've done of, of telling, you know, the story of the bear and, and enlightening people. And in, in a lot of ways, I'd say rekindling what was somewhat lost for a while, right? Like you said, you know, like we had a bunch of bears and then, you know, through market hunting, we didn't have that many bears. Like you said, there's kind of a, a gap there where people weren't having, they weren't pursuing bears. They weren't having interactions. They weren't able to learn about them because they weren't around them. Just what you've done throughout your career with the podcast, which I know we'll get there now. I'm getting ahead of myself, but just enlightening the world on, on the importance and significance of this animal, I mean, how it had played a role in shaping our country and uh, amongst other things. And, and yeah, it's just, it's just, it's incredibly important. You touched on the fact that hunting bears, it can be a pretty easy spin for groups that are not for hunting. You take a few clips here, you maybe, you know, provide zero context. Maybe you provide your own context. That's, I guess it doesn't have to be correct. <laughs> spin something that way and, and serve it up to folks. And, and yeah, the, the guard, guard the gate philosophy is, is a, is a very real thing. Like for whatever reason, you know, bears and, you know, some other critters, they, they kind of are the, the target of folks who, you know, in my opinion, their, their overall agenda is they, they don't want hunting anymore. You know, my, my home state is Washington. We recently lost, you know, I say R, I still consider myself part of that state, you know, the spring bear season there. I, I don't think there was a whole lot of foundation provided to, to make that decision. In, in that state, we have a, a, a two-bear limit fall season, and I'm hearing that there's rumblings on saying, well, maybe we need to take away that second bear. And it's like, like you said, it's guard the way. It's like, okay, boom. You know, we took away the spring bear season. Well, it doesn't stop there, right? And it's right. just kind of like that first domino to fall. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they incrementalization they 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 take take things incrementally i i think i i think the biggest thing that we can do is is just tell our story and be passionate about it be confident about it and then take action in the in the places where we can you know there's a lot of great groups out there that are that are every day fighting for our rights behind the scenes and stuff and and man i don't even i don't even sometimes i i, I don't even like to focus on the negative I think the more that we focus on the, the, the history, the heritage, the, the common sense, the success of our model, it just speaks for itself and just can override some of this stuff. But, you know, the, the, as we just, just keep, keep telling our story and not be, a, not be afraid of it, you know, I think it's important. I think that is the key. And I mean, that's, you know, it's hard to, when you do articulate it, in in those ways and the ways that you do i would think barring just you know somebody making this making a a judgment on just pure emotion which does happen difficult to argue with yeah yeah difficult to exactly argue with. it's true 
Maybe we need True. to uh, maybe we need to expand the, uh, the the ABA and go to the the well they already have an NBA. I was gonna say the National Bear Association, but we'll come up with a different name, Clay. But we gotta you know we gotta keep <laughs> keep uh, keep this message out there. So okay, so yeah. where 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 are where are we at in in your well, story? Well, golly, here? man, I just went on a big spiel there. Oh, you know, I, I mentioned I mentioned uh, if you're talking about kind of my career history and whatnot, I had. Arkansas Black Bear Association. And then, yeah, I acquired Bear Hunting Magazine in 2013 and, and did that for eight years. And Bear Hunting Magazine is the only print bear hunting magazine in the world still in existence. My good good friend, Colby Moorhead, owns and is running the magazine, is doing a great job. And um, that's that's when I was able to professionally dedicate a lot of my world to bear hunting. And I always tell people, during those eight years, all the media that I was producing, most of it was about bears, but I was still doing all the stuff I've always done. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've, I've always bow hunting for whitetails and, and it's been an equal passion. I mean, I can't say that I love bear hunting more than whitetail deer hunting. I mean, I, I really do, but, but, but I've, I've dedicated a lot of my career, which that's what people would see you know, to, to bear hunting. Um, and, uh, and also grew up small game hunting. I mean, we, we coon hunt with hounds and, and squirrel hunt with, with dogs. And, and I enjoy training, riding mules and, and using mules and, and any kind of hunting I can do. I just enjoy that. And then in 20, I believe it was 2020 is when I went to work for meat eater there was a period of time, which is a little confusing still maybe to some people, but there was a period of time when I was still publishing Bear Hunting Magazine and working for Meat Eater. And so about a year, but, but after that year, the magazine now, Colby has it. And so I don't technically have anything to do with Bear Hunting Magazine other than I'm a big fan. And I, I, I talk to Colby all the time. I mean, we, we, he, he's, we talk about the magazine and what he's doing. And, and so I, my heart's still there, you know, and it's a great resource for people for sure. Yeah. And then, um, Hey, stop me. If you have a question, or if you want to direct me a certain way, but no, uh, let's, let's, I mean, like this is uh this is might be the easiest podcast I ever do clay. So I appreciate it, man. <laughs> this is uh this is great. So yeah. I mean like, so how did, you know, you're talking about that transition or into with the folks at Mediator, like how did that come about? Well, I got a one sentence email from Steve Ranella with no greeting or, 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 you know, like goodbye. Good to talk to you. He just said, what's your cell phone number? <laughs> I hardly knew the guy that's Steve Ranella for you. No, I, I, it, it was, it was really a, something I'll never forget because I, I've always been a fan of Mediator and Steve Ranella really have. I mean, he was, he's one of the guys that I've always, looked up to I, i've been heavily influenced by ranella in a lot of different ways uh before i ever knew i'd work for him and so in 2020 i yeah literally got an email from him and said what's your cell phone number and uh told him had no idea what he wanted and you know like a week later he called me and just and i had i had i had talked to him before so you know i knew who he was and i knew he knew who i was but had no idea they were interested at the time and and me working for him. And he said, Hey man, are you interested in working for meat eater? You wouldn't have to move. You can stay in Arkansas. I mean, they kind of had it 
they they kind of had it scripted out there pretty good and they said we want you to do a podcast for us and it it was just too good not to do it would be a dream of mine to to work with that with them and 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 so pretty shortly well it it, it took a while it took six months it took six months but i i was working for meat eater and we no there was the, the only talk of the podcast beforehand was that I was just going to have a podcast for meat eaters just didn't know what it was going to be the formulation of the bear grease podcast was kind of interesting because I told them I said hey the only thing I want to do for sure is I said I want to have long form conversations with people cuz I felt like in what I was doing I had a podcast before called the bear hunting magazine podcast and I felt like that's where the the magic of human conversation plays out is in long form conversation. And I knew also that the trend and and what meat eater was actually doing was they were having kind of these shorter form, like cows week in review, which is an incredible podcast. And I, I kind of thought they might want me to do something like that. And I said, I want to have long form conversations with people. And so, and they, they, you know, were like, Hey, we'll, we'll work all that out. Well, when, when it came down to it, we, the team kind of had this idea of a documentary style podcast that was maybe a little bit shorter than like a two hour, you know, bigger kind of Joe Rogan meat eater style podcast. And at first, I mean, at first, the first moment I was like, man, no, I want to have long form conversations with people. And then we quickly we're like, how about you have long form conversations with people, but, but you build this documentary style podcast. And it actually was brilliant because on any given episode, I'll have multiple guests. I mean, sometimes as many as three or four on the same episode, and I will have had a long form conversation with them. I mean, I, I, I go and talk to people and and then when you can have long form conversations with experts, but then basically cherry pick the, the the portions that tell the story that you need to tell and combine them together with other long form conversations, it basically becomes a concentrated story with the information and the emphasis and the entertainment that you need. And, and it ended up being really great. Which initially, I, I, I mean, I'm kind of painting the picture that I was kind of opposed to it. I was like, what? I don't want to do that. And I didn't say that like that. That's an exaggeration. But, but, the, but the formulation of Bear Grease, which if nobody's listened to Bear Grease, we describe it as a, as a documentary style podcast, meaning there's multiple guests, but, but there's voiceover, there's VO describing sections of the podcast. And, and we're a a history, anthropology, hunting, conservation, storytelling podcast. <laughs> it's from a branding perspective. I wish we had a little tight, needy, a little tight, you know, clean way to describe what we are. But, but we tell a lot of different kinds of stories. The only thread that really connects them is, is there's, there's always some connection to the natural world, usually hunting, but not always. I mean, there's, we tell stories about rural America and uh, the, the, the hunting conservation space. And, and we do historical profiles on, on people that have been influential in American identity and, and identity of people like us, Mark, that, that have a connection to the natural world. You know, Daniel Boone, and we did a big series on Davy Crockett. We did a series on Holt Collier, African-American guy from Mississippi, 
who fought in the Civil War and and killed over 3,000 bears with hounds in Mississippi and guided Teddy Roosevelt, which became the, the, the that hunt became created the naming of the teddy bear, which is something that every one of us would say and be familiar with, but rarely know where that story came from. We've done stories on Native American leaders. I mean, so one of my favorite series we ever did was on the Shawnee leader, leader Tecumseh. I mean, just incredible, incredible stories that, that I didn't, I can't say I was an expert on these guys before I did the podcast. I mean, that, that's the thing is, is I'm learning. I'm, I'm, I'm learning as I do these. And, and I, I feel like if, and this is a credit to the team that I work with and, and the company that I work for that gives me the freedom to do this stuff for real. It's not a plug for me here. It's just the truth. They, they let me do whatever I want. <laughs> and, 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 and that, that means there's a lot of creative freedom and there's a lot of freedom for me to jump on an airplane and fly to New York and interview someone for an hour and get on a plane and go back. We do almost everything in person. Very, very little we do online. Like I want to be looking in somebody's eyes when I'm talking to them. And, uh, and, and I, I'd like to think if we do a series on somebody that it's, it's going to be robust and, and, you know, I mean, I don't know of a Daniel Boone series as far as podcasts goes, that would be any more robust than what we created and Davy Crockett and Tecumseh and Holt Collier and Warner Glenn and all these iconic characters. Like when I go into it, I'm like, I, my goal is let's make something that people will be able to refer to years from now and say, man, you got to go listen to that Boone series, you know? For and sure. that's fun. That's a challenge for me. And it's, it's not something I've ever, it, it's, it's a, it's a skill set that's developing. I mean, I didn't know how to do any of this before I started, you know, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. What well, I'd say your, your intuition for finding a good story and for seeking out the people to help tell that story. And then as well as your, your storytelling and ability to articulate those things You've got quite the natural, natural knack for that, Clay. And, and yeah, the podcast itself, I mean, there's a lot of podcasts out there, and, and it truly is, and I'm not just saying this, it, it is, is a, it's a standout because of, of the content and the stories that you tell, but the style in which you guys do it, like, yes, it's a documentary, but it, it's a story, it's, it's an audio book, it's, I mean, it's so many things wrapped up in one and like the way it bounces around and then you guys tie it up, you know, at the end with a bow. Like, I mean, it's like, it's really cool, man. And I just, I don't think there's, there's not anything else out there that I'm aware of, at least in what I'd call our space doing anything similar. And, and if a person hasn't listened to it, I would certainly encourage them to, because, um, like you said, Clay, you, you're, you're diving into these things so in depth. I mean, I think that you know, 10, 20, 30, whatever years from now, people are going to look back at what you guys have put together. And that's going to be like the go-to resource. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's been pretty incredible. The reception we've had too. I mean, people, the, the, I didn't think people would care to be honest with you. What's so funny about my, my, a lot of the stuff that I've done is that, I wasn't sure people were interested in, in some of this, some of the stuff we talk about. And it turns out they are, 
you know, I mean, it, it, it really does. And, and it's been, it's been a, it's been a ton of fun. It really has been a ton of fun. Well, I think sometimes you don't know, like even, even when I'm listening to it, right. And I guess I do have a general interest in, in the space, but like, sometimes you don't know you're interested until you're interested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's all kinds of stories that will start off that it's kind of like, why are we talking about this? But, but, but hopefully, hopefully pretty quickly you realize why we're talking about it. But, you know, I, I wanted to say something. I feel like that in the hunting space, like we're not, we're not just trying to preserve the ability to go out and, and shoot a deer or to shoot a bear like that that's that's the that's the very outer layer of something that we're trying to preserve and i think that as as a in a hunting community and and i'm not the first one to say this but we're telling our story as as humans you know i mean like we have a we have a big deep cultural story like we are a product of something that is very very american i mean truly very american we're a, a subset of the culture that has been here since the beginning of, of, of this country and before. And, and I think a way to continue to fortify ourselves as a, as a legitimate, permanent piece of American identity, the backwoodsman, the hunter, which has so many influences too. I mean, it's not just, that's not just a, an American thing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm incredibly fascinated by the ways native americans have have influenced influenced so many of the people that we look back to for identity you know boone and crockett and oh golly i mean what separated us from i believe i think i think what made what makes us different than europeans is native americans these people literally came you know the the european settlement in a way of the american colonies these people were Europeans and they came here and they'd still be Europeans today if it weren't for the the connection they had with the indigenous people that were here that were so influential and it's such a turbulent and wild story i mean uh, of atrocity and that's what we hear a lot of but there were a lot of a lot of places where we were deeply influenced by native americans and and i think that's what made the american backwoodsman who he was and and i like to give credit to the Native American influence that most of us don't even recognize inside of who we are. But point is, my, my, that was a tangent. Coming back to the main story here, Mark, the, the way that we can leave a lasting imprint on the culture is by telling a bigger story of, of who we are and, 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 and having insight into the human condition. You know, so many of us talk about our a connection to nature that is, that, that makes us, makes us whole, makes us healthy. It's a place where we find spiritual connection, where we find God, where we, I mean, I, I really believe that a genuine connection to hunting and, and the natural systems of the world has the potential, not in and of itself to make us better people. It's not like going out and sitting in a tree stand is going to make you a better husband, but it does have, it, it's a conduit for that to happen. It's a, it's a conduit. And so I think that we have the the a a a place in the broader hunting community to be people that people look up to. There was a time when a hunter was the 
the rock star of American culture for real. I mean, we were the, we were the sports stars. I mean, like that, going back to that story of the big bear of Arkansas, this fictional funny story about this character from Arkansas. I mean, basically jockeys and hunters, like men who raced horses and the hunters were the LeBron James. They were the, they were the, the NASCAR, you know, they were the Dale Earnhardt's of that time, the hunters. Right. And, <laughs> and, and it, it's never going to be quite like that, but, but when people meet a hunter, I think they, they, there should be a sense of this guy's probably got some, some meat to the bone of his character and integrity and who he is. And, and obviously there's always bad apples. There's bad apple. There's bad apples in every place, but in general, I think hunting should be synonymous with character, you know, man. And that's beautiful. I mean, I think, and, and so telling these stories like we do on, like I'm, like I'm trying to do is I, I, I want, I want people that don't hunt to come listen to a story that they might be interested in about Tecumseh or Boone or, or, or we did a podcast once on a gas station taxidermy, which might sound like something not somebody would be interested in, but we talked about quite a bit about American culture, looking through the lens of deer heads hanging in rural gas stations. And I want them to be have be like, wow, I, I got some insight from that. And then they'll say, who told me that? Who are these people? And they're like, this, these are the hunters, you know? Yep. And, uh, and so that's what I'm trying to do, man. Well, I mean, there really is so much, you know, substance behind, you know, behind our history or in hunting in general. And like you said, the character that it, that it does build, I know, you know, some of my greatest challenges in life and the things that I'm most proud of and the things that have shaped me ha as a person, they've happened in the woods, right? And I think the more we can hopefully, through stories like yours, encourage people who may not be as connected to the land to, to seek it out, maybe seek it out in a different way, a more meaningful way. It's just incredibly, incredibly important for the multitude of reasons. You, you hear sometimes folks that start hunting later in life, right? And they kind of they, they make that connection, connect those dots later in life. And they're like, man, like I didn't realize that that was like innately inside of me. Like I feel so much more connected. There was a, there was a part of me that was, that was missing that I've found now. And I think the more we can encourage people to 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 do that, obviously, the better. Not not only even just for hunting as a whole to 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 move forward and and maintain those traditions, but for society in general, right? Like I just think there's so many valuable things there, um, and and person doesn't have to spend you know every waking moment, but I I do think it can be a uh, certainly an important part of their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where should we go next, Clay? You've been taking me all over. You've been taking me all over the map. I've enjoyed every second of it. <laughs> well, you know, talking about all this stuff about how much we love hunting and are passionate about it. I mean, a big part of my life too, Mark, is being balanced inside of my passions. You know, I, I'm married. I've been married for 23 years. I have four children, and uh, you know, working for a meat eater or, or and doing what I do is not a license for me to just 
have a, a life that's imbalanced where all I do is hunt. I really don't. I mean, so much of my life is, revolves around my family in our church and different places that I'm involved as much as with everything I've said, I'm also, I'm also working on a lot of parts of my life that don't have anything to do with hunting, you know, but they're all connected to me. They really are. They're, they're all connected. For sure. For sure. Should we dive in clay? Should we dive in to one of your more recent bear stories? Yeah, man, I'm ready. And dive in. I, I use that very intentionally there. I'm sure you know that. Was that was good, Mark. I, I, I caught that. I, I, know, I know you caught that. So what, what's going on here? You were on a Southeast Alaska bear hunt. Yeah. Let's just let's go through the entire hunt, but you definitely implemented some uh, unique tactics. Yes. So I, I, drew a, I drew a tag in Southeast Alaska, and just by chance, I didn't even know that Steve Rinella had put in his tag too, which I guess he does about every year, but, but he, he drew the same tag. And so I told him, I said, Hey man, I got a tag. And he said, well, great. Well then you can come with me. And I, I, I don't think it's a secret. I mean, it's been all over media and stuff. Steve owns a fish, what he calls the fish shack in Southeast Alaska. And so he was like, well, yeah, come bear hunt with me at the fish shack in, in, you know, 2023. And so we planned the hunt and, I had never is I, I I've done a lot of bear hunting in some of the, the the country's best places to bear hunt, but I had never bear hunted Southeast Alaska. So this was new to me. And typically the way guys are hunting them is it's a coastal hunt where we we were at anyway, where we're hunting them from boats. So basically is the you're 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 in a, a small vessel back in little coves and when the tide goes out the bears come out onto onto the shore to eat blue mussels crabs to eat anything they can find that was left there by the tide and that part of alaska has some of the biggest tide swings in the world i'm told so you have these big vast you know pretty big areas of shore that are all of a sudden exposed for like six hour time periods based upon the tide and whatnot and these bears come out in these tidal flats and and that's when you that's when you hunt them when the tide is up the tide goes right up to the to the edge of the woods and it's thick very thick woods and so it's hard to see them in the woods you got to catch them when they're out and so anyway steve was telling me about this and and he knew that i have always enjoyed unique ways of of hunting bears and so he was like man i tell you what he said one thing i've always wanted to do was to wear my wetsuit that I have for spearfishing. And when you see a bear from the boat, just jump in the water and swim to the bear. Because the way it works is you have a, a you know, like let's just say a 20-foot 20 20 boat with a motor. Well, what, what we do is carry a canoe in the boat with us. And so you motor out to where you're going to hunt, and then you're – if you're three to 400 yards offshore, these bears really don't care that you're there. And so you're glassing bears from your boat and you see one and then you put the canoe in the water, jump into the canoe and then paddle, not directly towards the bear, but, you know, to the, to the downwind side of the bear, a couple hundred yards. And they had primarily hunted them with rifles. So really you're just trying to get within you know, 150 yards of the bear or whatever, or closer if you can, 
or further if you have to. But so you use the canoe to get onto the shore. It's illegal to shoot out of a boat. So you can't shoot out of a boat. Your feet got to be on the ground. And then you get on the shore and you stalk the bear. Well, I wanted to bow hunt. And Steve, Steve said, hey, I've always had this idea of using a wetsuit to swim up to a bear. And I said, well, why don't we do it? And he was like, well, there, you know, we, we talked about all the logistics. I'd have to get a wetsuit. We'd have to figure out how to carry the bow. And basically it was a combination of, of Steve's knowledge of the area and his knowledge of spearfishing equipment. You know, I would have never that golly Mark, that water of the, the Pacific Northwest. I mean, I'm from Arkansas, man. I'm inland. I mean, I, I'm I'm a I'm a decent swimmer and been in the water, but I'm not that cool with just like jumping in big wild oceans. <laughs> I mean, I, I was intimidated and wouldn't have even known that you could have really done that, to be honest with you. I mean, the water's very cold all year round. Killer whales and seals and I mean I was I had a lot of dumb questions at first for, for Steve. You know, like now I, I think it's I think it's smart for a person to ask those <laughs> questions before you jump in the water. Like you said, that that water is cold. It's not crystal clear. You you definitely no. have you know, you look down, it's almost almost black, you know, it seems. And yes. and I'd have a couple questions too. Like Well, and it's a it's an ocean wilderness. That's why you know, you think of the ocean, you think of you don't really think of it being a wilderness, but man, golly, when you're up there, you know, it's a fly-in camp. So you, you can't drive to where we were at. You you fly in on a beaver and land. And so you're you're literally in the wilderness. And then you go out from your camp and they're going way back in these co remote coves. And that's an ocean wilderness. And and so that was that was intimidating to me. But I also well, Steve just said, I mean, I think, I think we'll be able to get up close to a bear and it'll really work. And, and I knew it would work too, but it was still kind of, a we weren't, we felt like the, there was going to be some real limiting factors on finding the right bear. And it was just going to be logistically difficult because it's not easy to put on a wetsuit. You don't just like no. see a bear and just like, Oh, let me put on the wetsuit. I mean, it's, it's a commitment to put a wetsuit on. And so. I've, I've put a wetsuit on a couple times and I, I was tired at the end of it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> oh, I've, I've got a funny story about getting uh, claustrophobic in that thing and nearly, nearly wigging out, but that's another day. The, so the first couple of days though, that we hunted, uh, my friend Randall Williams was with us as well. He works for meat eater and he killed a really nice bear with a rifle on day three. And so he was up front. And so we were kind of watching bears and trying to figure out I was not in a wetsuit. I was just support team for the first couple of days. Randall killed a bear the whole time. We're talking about it. Like, man, I think I could have swam up to that bear. Or, There's no way I could have swam up to that one. Or we got, and we realized we needed a pretty specific alignment of things to happen for it to work. The first day though, that I hunted, I didn't even have the wetsuit on. I just had on waders which waders are really great because you can stalk along the edge of the shore with your feet in the water and not make noise. I mean, it's like you don't have cover cause you're out in the water, but the shorelines, we found them to be pretty loud, pretty difficult to, to stalk and get up close doable for a bow. But I mean, people do it often, 
stalk bears in those conditions. But oh yeah, I've I've done that hunt a couple times, Clay. Okay. Uh, but both times with the rifle, and when you're talking about noisy stalking conditions, I mean you've got barnacles on rocks, you've got mussels on rocks, you've got broken clamshells that are breaking under your feet, you've got poppy kelp, which are like, I mean, a picture like the the shoreline being lined with bubble wrap. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, man, it's it's challenging. Like with the rifle, like yeah, less less of an issue. Like you said, you get within hunt, you know, a couple hundred yards or so, or you can shoot maybe across a little bay or something like that, or or even you know from from a, a rock or pinnacle or on the. But the bow, that's that's a little bit different story. Right. Yeah. It it it's harder. And I stalked a couple of bears just using waders tr- trying to trying to get it done and 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 we had some great stalks I, I hope they make the film some of the stalks that we did with the bow because we we got in pretty close to some but they just wouldn't turn right and anyway I didn't didn't kill one so the that was the fourth day the fifth day is when we said okay I'm putting on the wetsuit and we're gonna try to kill one swimming up to it and so what I did is I, I went here, here in Arkansas and bought the cheap little boogie board, like a three foot light styrofoam board with like this plastic shrink wrap around it. When I got it, Mark, it was like, it looked like, you know, some kid would have at a beach. It was like blue and yellow and it was like kitty colors. And I, I spray painted it. it. It had a little rope that you pulled it and it was the perfect size for a bow. I mean, it was, you know, okay. about 36 inches long, I think and about probably 20 inches wide, maybe 18 inches wide. I'm and sure I, it said I, that on the packaging too, like works great for bows. Yeah, yeah, it's bow boogie board, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I got to give so much credit to Steve. This was Steve's idea. He, he said, go buy a boogie board, and I was like, <laughs> great. And so, yeah, I can't tell this story with taking too much credit for it. This this was Steve's brainchild, and so I, I, I want to give him I want to give him the credit. I did that, and then I, I I drilled two holes up through the boogie board with a with a big big drill bit, and put some hay string up through it, and was able to put the bow on the top of the boogie board and run this hay string up through and tie it on. So that was my technology, and then Mark, I unclipped my Vortex rangefinder, and it's got the little the little squiggly tail. You know, yep. the stretchy, squiggly tail. Bungee with a clip, or whatever. little bungee. And I just clipped that onto my bow in a secure way. So I knew that the that the, that the rangefinder wasn't going to f- get lost in the ocean and just set it up on the board. And, and this was untested. Like, we didn't test this before. I didn't know really how wet stuff was going to get. I imagined it would get quite wet, but. Still, it was floating floating on top of the water. And what I learned real quick is that that bow and that that rangefinder just were just getting soaked with water constantly. You know, just constant getting splashed by waves. And I mean, the ocean's pretty rough. Even we were back in these coves, but still, it's pretty rough water. The first day, we stalked a couple of bears, swam quite a bit, and never never got within bow range of them. We had one bear smell us while we were in the water. And so I had a, I had a cameraman with me, uh, dirt myth. 
Garrett Smith is his name that, that, that we call him dirt. We felt like being in the water would do two things. You know, a bear isn't going to have a natural predator in the water and they're just less weary of things in the water. Number two, we felt like it would be a silent approach, which was true. Very true. Number three, I felt like it would protect us from, from getting smelled because all that was going to be above water was our heads. And I just thought they're going to have a hard time smelling us. That proved to be not true. They, uh, we had, we had a bear wind us that we were trying to, you know, the wind shifted when we got into about 50 yards of it. And that bear apparently smelled our breath because he absolutely spooked off scent while we were just barely sticking out of the water. Golly. You know? Yeah. Um, which is so interesting because, oh, don't get me started on scent control. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's like, buddy, you can wash your clothes. You can do a whole lot of stuff. But uh, those critters can smell your breath. Oh, man. Um, well, you know, you think about like, some folks, like you said, don't 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 get me started either. But like, oh, I wear rubber boots, you know. So for scent control, it's like, man, you were in a rubber suit for scent control with your <laughs> yeah. most of your body below the water. But. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it was fascinating to see it to see that happen. So the first day we had limited success. Second day we stalked a couple of bears. I, I, I'm honestly losing track of how many days it took us. I want to say it was the third day I put on a wetsuit that what what had happened was is we had seen bears that part of alaska is this intricate just web of small little canals that go into bigger pools and and, and the shoreline is extremely cut up mm -hmm. and there's islands all over the place and there was one spot where we had seen bears three days in a row where two points came together and the bears were swimming across this like 40 yard section of a, like a little canal. They were swimming across it to get to this other side. And we'd just seen bear after bear there. And there was an Island about as big as a 4,000 square foot house with hardly any trees on it, about 50 yards from that point. And the wind was typically blowing out from the land onto the, like, on just where that we were, it was blowing like out into the ocean. And so we decided that they were just going to drop us off on that island. Me and Dirt, who had an underwater camera, hadn't said that yet. He had an underwater camera. And we were just going to sit on that island and wait for a bear to pop up. And we were going to swim across the channel and go go hunt it and man it worked incredibly well within a couple hours of sitting on the island we saw a bear kind of you know about 150 yards around this cove he wasn't right in front of us but he was coming our direction or well we, we didn't know he was coming our direction we just saw a bear 200 yards away cross about a 40 yard channel and it's and it's a lone bear I, I, at this point i wasn't really worried about how big the bear was or or i wasn't right. trying to kill a monster it would have been cool i was more looking for a bear that was just doing the right thing mm -hmm. we see this bear and we immediately just jump in the water and start swimming across this channel and we get halfway to the land on the other side and the bear had covered about a hundred yards and pops up within bow range 
of me while while me and dirt are in the middle of the channel i mean just bobbing in the water you know i got my boogie board and the whole time i hadn't mentioned it multiple times multiple times while i was swimming i'd look down and i would see that rangefinder bobbing down in the water hanging off of that bungee you know 20 inches under the salt water um and i i, I had to have that rangefinder though like i wasn't I didn't know if I was going to get a 10 yard shot, a 40 yard shot. I had to have that range. I couldn't find a way around it. Right. And I, it had to be accessible. It couldn't be in some weird spot. I didn't really have any storage. So that was the best way I could do it. And I was just like, man, we're going to test this, this, this range finder out. So I say that to say, you know, here, here I am in the, in the moment of truth. And I need to know if this rangefinder works, if 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 my whole system is gonna work. But it so this bear pops up. I'm getting ahead of myself. The bear pops up. We're floating in the middle of the of this channel and clear view of the bear. And he just never even acknowledges us. You know, they're just not he just thought we were a seal. Yeah. There were seals all over the place too. It was pretty in, kind of it wasn't unnerving. It was just you'd be swimming and you we look like seals. Right. And there would be seals popping up just like checking us out, you know, that's, it's a big and, critter uh, to be in the water with, you know? Yeah. 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 The bear pops out and he starts feeding on mussels within bow range, but we're in deep, deep water. And so we just kind of float down and get out of sight of the bear. There was a big rock on the shore, about as big as a car. And we kind of crawled up on the shore and I untied my bow, got my range finder, got my release on, got everything ready while I was kind of on the shore protected downwind of the bear, probably 40, only probably 50, 60 yards from it at this point, got back in the water, really only about waist deep, but we hunkered down where just our heads were up. And I mean, I just, we just walked right to that bear and I got about probably 12 yards from him and I had to just get the angle just right. So I had to get that close and I, I, and, and I actually didn't end up using the range finder on that one. Cause it was so close. I just was like, this bear's right in my lap. Right. But the range finder 100% worked and still works to this day. I tested it just before we got on here. I keep going back to it thinking, <laughs> well, eventually that salt water is going to mess it up. It did not. It still works today. And, uh, I mean, I just raised up out of the water and, and shot this bear. It, it, it fell within sight. It was, it was an incredible experience. It was uh, a challenge. It wasn't, I didn't want, it, it wasn't a stunt. It, it legitimately was right. like a way to kill a bear. If I was going back there, wanted to bow hunt, I'd do the same thing again. I mean, right. it would be, it, it, once I got this one under my belt, if, if I do go back, I will try to employ this to kill a big one. You know, I mean, like go in with a with the with the target goal of killing a really nice big male bear. Yep. It was just a unique strategy that worked really well. So when I when I shot the bear, I was in water probably like up to my thighs, you know. Mm -hmm. But but I was hunkered down and then just stood up. I just I just needed the the bottom cam of the bow to clear the water, you know, when it shot. And when I shot, it's cool. The video's cool. It's just like a spray of water off of that bow. No you know? way. It worked incredibly well. And so that's my boogie board bear story. Man, I love it. Proof of concept for sure. And and like you said, I mean, everything about it, 
it makes sense. Like you said, you're quiet. Like, you know, if you've got the, you know, like you said, you got to have the wind in your favor. But I think those bears, you know, why, why would they be expecting something coming from the ocean like that? And, and even if they do see something out there, I mean, there's driftwood and seals and birds and there's a lot of stuff happening out there all the time. Like even if they caught a little bit of movement, I just don't think it's necessarily going to register like what's going on there. I, I know even with like small inflatable boats or canoes when I've been up there, like they'll, they'll tolerate, you know, a, fa- a fair amount actually, as long as you're not being super ridiculous with it. So, but that's, that's cool. And yeah, for anybody that's been around and this is, you know, this is my shameless Vortex rangefinder plug, but it, it, anybody that's been around a marine environment, saltwater hates just about everything. Like, I, I can't say that I'm going to go intentionally dunk my rangefinder in saltwater, but it is, I mean, that is an amazing testament to that unit that it, it worked, it would have worked in the moment and it's still working today. And it sounds like the shot you got is the bow shot that we all look for, uh, me included. I mean, I, I don't leave without my rangefinder, but when I get a shot that I don't need it, that's, that's the shot that I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I, and I was using it a lot using it a lot on the other stocks and in different ways, but it, it worked great. And, and, you know, I kind of just chalked it up to if it failed, it was just like, you know, the cost of admission, you know, yeah. and, and I was spraying it off with a water hose every day. I oh, just okay. take my bow. Yeah. And I mean, that's a testament too to the, to really how weatherproof these units are. I mean, golly, it, it puts, and now I'm not wanting people to go like test the limits with, water in the field i mean that's not smart i mean it's a great idea to keep stuff dry but again this is just something i had to have it had to be in the water had it was gonna get wet but i would come home every evening and take a water hose at the fish shack and spray off my range finder and my bow (laughs) trying to get that salt water off and it 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 didn't hurt it man it still works that is still works what was it like drawing your bow with a wetsuit on it was, it wasn't that big a deal. Okay. It, it really wasn't. I, now I had my head, my, my hood up over my head. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I was a kid growing up, my dad would have us shoot our bows with the, the, the head net and the gear we were going to be hunting with, you know, just trying to find that anchor point. Mm-hmm. And when I pulled it back at, and I had, I had pulled it back obviously with the wetsuit on before and had shot. And so I was confident in that, but if you know how it is, you shoot enough archery, even if it feels weird, you just know where your anchor is, mm-hmm. even though, cause it, you know, that, that wetsuit slapped my ear up against my face and, you know, kind of felt awkward, but I just knew it's like, yep, that's my anchor. And it, it, it wasn't and, and the constriction of the wetsuit is, is pretty, it's not too bad. Okay. I mean, it was, I was able to pull a bow fine. That is awesome, man. I mean, what an, uh, what an incredible, unique story. Like you said, it wasn't a stunt. It's just sometimes getting creative is what you need to do to, to have it work out. That's definitely a, uh, a fantastic example of it. And I mean, you talk about the, the water there being a wilderness and then, you know, just the land is a wilderness there. It's definitely a, a unique and special place. One of my favorite places in the world is, is that region. Mm, yeah. And it's cool that you got to experience it in that way yeah it was it really was did wild we, place i don't think so clay did we did we miss anything along our our, our windy path to get to your uh your bear story 
I don't think so, Mark. It was pretty, you know, the chronology there works for me if it works for you. No, it, it works for us, man. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, appreciate everything you're doing. It's it's truly important work, and I think it's making a difference. And, and the information and the stories that you tell and the manner in which you which you and, and the Meteor team are doing, just, just really uh, vital, impactful. Can't thank you enough. Yeah, thank you, Mark. All right. Really appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Well, hopefully we'll see you in the Bear Woods. You might like this. You might like this, Clay, because because I actually I was going to wrap it. No, I'm not. <laughs> I love bear hunting is one of my favorite things to do. And I'm going mm. I'm actually going to leave and head up into the Alpine here in a couple weeks. And I actually planned this bear hunt more than a year ago. And I'm actually not archery elk hunting this year because I mm. was going to I was going to be able. So I actually chose I chose bears over elk this year. Really? Which That's great. I don't think too many people would do. <laughs> well, good luck, man. Uh, you know, bears live in wild places, and I think that's part of the reason we hunt is to just go experience a wild place. And sometimes what you're hunting is less important than the place, and bears live in cool places. 100%, you know? man. Nope, you nailed it. I mean, that that high alpine country, man, it, it's a special place. And and I was just talking about that with the guy that I'm, that I'm going with, and it's like it just – I've been in that country just one time before, but man, it just, it captured my heart and we didn't even get a bear. We saw two in yeah. a week of hunting, but I was like, I got to get back to that place. You know? Yeah, man. That's cool. So that's really cool. Good luck. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Clay. Thank you everybody for listening. Appreciate it. If you like this one, let us know, drop a comment below and uh, until next time, happy hunting and shooting. We'll catch you on the next one. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you like what you hear, hit that subscribe button, give us a review, or leave a comment. We want to hear what you have to say. If you have a question or topic suggestion, let us know that as well via the Vortex Nation podcast YouTube page or any of Vortex's social platforms. That helps us cover exactly what you want to hear so we can provide the best information to help you with your hunting, shooting, and related activities, and ultimately enjoy them to their fullest potential. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next one.